Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to The History of England, episode 196, Dawn of the Tudor Age, otherwise known as episode 5.1, because this is the start of the series of podcasts on Tudor England, a period which seems to be a lot of people's favourite, and to be fair, I understand why it is of fundamental importance in the formation of the English state, in political, administrative and religious terms, it is peopled with glittering and fascinating figures, and the politics and society of the court of Henry VIII is never anything else than compelling. It is also a time when at last we have a bit more time to talk about and understand the individuals involved, a bit more information. A historian once remarked to me that the early modern period is the perfect period for historical study. There are enough records and evidence to paint a compelling picture, but not so much as to overwhelm. In social terms, this is the glory day of the Republic of the Parish, self-government at the King's command, monarchical republics as they have been called. And meanwhile, population growth from midway in the century leads to a lot of change, though honestly we cover more of that in Series 6. So hold your horses on that one. Because I have split the Tudor age into early and late. This one, Series 5, is the earliest, 1485 to 1554. After all, no one is interested in what happened in the middle, and indeed, as Carr the Snake says in Disney's Jungle Book, there's nothing in the middle. I have been waiting years to squeeze in that quote. Finally made it. Share my joy. Of course, such a split in the Tudor years is a bit arbitrary. It means I can go boy-girl, boy-girl, though, planting the Henrys and the boy-king Edward I as earlies, and then the usurper queen Mary and good queen Bess in main crop. You get the Tudors as tubers here on the History of England. So, 
In the earlys, we start, of course, with 14 episodes on Henry VII, a king with a bad reputation as a tyrant. But from whom is that bad reputation, I might ask, and for what reason? Henry VII was the most medieval of the Tudors and had the same struggle with legitimacy as had Henry IV. How he manages that is a fascinating story, and we also meet a dynamic duo in Empsom and Dudley, Henry's hatchet men. Henry also starts the Tudor love affair with very talented first ministers. Henry VII was blessed with the inventor of a particular type of fork, John Morton. Next up is Cardinal Wolsey, to be followed by Thomas Cromwell, men of enormous talent. And what to say about their master, Henry VIII, that hasn't already been said. His reign is, of course, not only a massive hooli and riot of intrigue and glamour, but also laced with a good deal of outrage, which is always fun, and in his version of Reformation is of extraordinary significance to England's history. There is so much in Henry's reign that it will take us 46 episodes, 210 to 255, to get through the stories of the personalities like Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Thomas Cranmer, Anne Askew, and all that, as well as the, with the Reformation. Which then brings us up to the real Reformation, the rule of the boy king, Edward VI, and Thomas Cranmer's heyday. Not that Edward's story is just Reformation. Both Henry VIII and Edward's reign are marked by a series of conservative popular uprisings, notably The Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, which are episodes 234 and 5, and The Year of Camps, 1549, Commotion Time, and the story of Robert Kett and the Reformation Tree in episode 259. There is also a member's shedcast on Robert Kett, should you choose to sign up as a member. Edward's death is followed by one of the most tragic stories in England's royal history, the story of Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen. Now, this podcast takes the view that it was Mary, not Jane, that was the usurper of the throne, and we pushed the boat out on this story. I did a series of nine short episodes that follow each day of Jane's reign as the, as the drama unfolds. The image of the Duke of Northumberland in the marketplace in Cambridge is one of my defining images of the Tudor period, and that is where we leave series five. So, that is enough introduction for the 77 episodes of series five, The Utterly Tudors, episodes 196 to 282. Now, it's back to the podcasts. So, as you will realise from last week, I am in scene-setting mode. No doubt you are impatient for me to get on with the Tudor years that fascinate so many of us, and yet I find myself unwilling to take that first step, even though we start with the least well-known of them in Henry VII. I feel the need, then, to linger on the doorstep of medieval England and the modern age. So, nope, sadly, I have to ask you to indulge me in my desire to set the scene and make sure we're all at the same point in the story about where England is in the scheme of things. Also, I did wonder if there are folks out there who give not a tinker's curse about medieval England and only start getting excited when the Tudors appear. If so, I thought it would be only polite of me to give folks a place to start. Start here. Last time, I therefore tried to give you an idea of the European political world in which England sat 
and its rather peripheral position within it. This week, I want to do that with the state in which England finds itself in social terms at the start of what is called by historians, despite constant backbouting about it, the early modern age. I should stop apologising, but one more thing. Most of what I talk about today we will probably have covered elsewhere before. But let me try and pull it together and summarise it, that sort of thing. So let's start with a little survey of the British Isles and more specifically England. To say that the British Isles is composed broadly of four peoples is going to upset somebody, and I expect comments. I expect God's own county of Yorkshire to run up a flag somewhere and digitally burn the History of England podcast in the streets. I expect the Cornish to fiercely point out that they trace their descent straight back to the pre-Roman conquest Dumnoni and Cornovii, and don't tar us with a brush of that Anglo-Saxon stuff. I expect the folks of Norfolk to look up and realise with some surprise that there's a country called England attached to their western borders. What's that doing there? And so on. But forgive me, gentle listeners, and allow me to summarise. So, we have the Welsh in the west of the island of Britain, or should I say Cymru, Welsh being an Anglo-Saxon word for foreigner, since Wales retained her independence for many centuries after the Anglo-Saxon migrations. The Welsh are pretty much part of the Kingdom of England after the wars of Edward I, though legally this is a process not completed until 1542. The Welsh retain their very own distinct laws and customs, and they are a people much discriminated against by the English and by English law. Along the border with England lie a number of very powerful lordships called the Marches, where the lords have pretty much the same level of rights as a king, responsible only on a personal basis to the King of England. These are a hangover from the days of Billy the Conch, who needed men with strength to fight the then independent Welsh. In the north, where men are still men and women are still women and furry creatures and all that sort of thing, is the independent Kingdom of Scotland. Their independence has, of course, been a matter of some debate during the times of Edward I, who decided to muck up a perfectly decent relationship by ignoring the agreement Richard I had made for 10,000 nicker with William the Lion that Scotland was no longer subject to the English crown. The result was the Declaration of Arbroath, a document stirring enough to almost make you want to be Scottish. I better quote it. For... As long as but a hundred of us remain alive, never will we on any conditions be brought under English rule. It is in truth not for glory, not for riches, not for honours that we are fighting, but for freedom, for that alone which no honest man gives up, but with life itself. By golly, that's good, isn't it? From that time until 1707, England was sadly separated from the land of the Forfabredi, during the debate and referendum on Scottish independence, my mate Jimmy said he'd seen a bloke in Slough saying he thought it'd be a shame because borders create conflict. Wow, I thought, that guy has a brain the size of a large orbital satellite. And if you want evidence, look at the border between England and Scotland, what the English call the Northern Marches at the time of the Tudor age. That is bandit country, ladies and gentlemen. The borders are ill-defined. There was an area called the Debatable Land, for example, and the families and clans are organised for constant warfare. They're even called the Reavers. And if you want to know more, you can go to episode 156. 
This is wild, beautiful Highland country. Once again, the lords there and the wardens of the northern marches have special powers and rights. The kings in the north, the Percy family, ruling from Harry Potter's castle at Annick, are absolutely indispensable, part of the soil. King after king was forced to reinstate them after they caused some trouble or other, because the north just couldn't be ruled without them. The vast bishopric of Durham also had palatine powers, and the astoundingly fantastic Norman Cathedral in Durham, half church, half castle against the Scot, as our lad Walter described it. And then Ireland across the Irish Sea to the west. Ireland is a deeply divided land. The Normans, when they came to conquer the English, came also to conquer Ireland, because, well, that was what they did, that's their thing. But the conquest of Ireland went only so far. So at the start of Tudor times, the area directly controlled by the English crown is a pretty tiny area around Dublin called the Pale, from the Latin palus, a stake, post. The descendants of the original Norman invaders are now called the Anglo-Irish, and they are semi-autonomous from the English crown with great lordships in many parts of Ireland. They have married into the local Irish population over the years and adopted many of their customs and dress. And meanwhile, the original Gaelic Irish lords effectively control much of Ireland too. The local customs and laws and ways of living remain very much in place. So, although the king in England describes himself as King of Ireland, it's a pretty optimistic claim, to be honest. And so we come to England. Now, I can't go into all the regions of England, but there are maybe a couple of fault lines. One is topography. The north and west of England is, broadly speaking, an upland zone, with the associated characteristics of more pastoral farming. In the south, Midlands and east is lowland, where arable farming had traditionally predominated. And then the second fault line is north and south, Although the official dividing line these days is often the River Trent, the River Humber is probably more accurate in our time a bit further north. By our period, English kings rarely now travel up there. Richard III was quite an exception in this regard. And as his reign showed, there is suspicion between the south and north, even all the way back then. Having said that, for the vast majority of the population, daily life, and what really matters was not an affinity to the distant king in London, the seat of government. It's about their own lord and locality and community. In a time of difficult and slow communication, where the remnants of the 1,500-year-old Roman roads are still the fastest and best land routes, most people travel but little, or certainly outside their region. So, all regions have their own dialect and customs and actually it's pretty difficult to understand people from different areas. Despite that, by comparison with most of Europe, England is a highly centralised and integrated kingdom. Far more so than, say, France, for example. And Germany, well, Germany's a right old hot pot. And don't even get me started on Italy. Central government after the conquest had been largely peripatetic, a few folks travelling around the country with the king. By the Tudor age, the vast majority is now centred firmly in Westminster to the west of London and has grown considerably, though a tiny fraction, of course, to that which we'd recognise today. And the king is also much less mobile than they had been. 
The Tudor age will see a further transformation of the way government is conducted, and it's one of the reasons why historians have seen 1485 as a watershed between medieval and modern eras. At the top of government and society sat the king, of course. And we have come a long way from the tribal leader of the Anglo-Saxon migrations. We have come quite a long way from Henry II, too, from the days when a king was essentially first amongst equals, and his court was on the road all the time touring the kingdom. By Henry VII's time, the king's will is still paramount, and the king is a theocratic institution, directly blessed and anointed by God. For example, English kings could touch for the king's evil, apparently a God-given ability to cure scrofula. No one is arguing for a constitutional monarchy that have looked at you like a dog whose bone you'd hidden, confused, deeply hurt, betrayed. Nonetheless, there are some areas where kings realise and accept they have an absolute responsibility. They have to consult regularly with their great men, their lords. This has evolved two institutions, a standing council, made of great men and civil servants called the King's Council and the Lords in Parliament, which will at some point soon be called the House of Lords. They have also accepted that there are some things they can only do with the consent of the wider community, the Commons, composed of representatives of the people of the shires and the towns. Those are principally taxation, in the form of customs dues and direct special taxes. That's one of the main reasons why kings call Parliament by Henry's day, kings have recognised that they'll only be given a special tax in times of war. In normal times, they need to live of their own, is the phrase. I.e., they need to live and run government from the income that comes from their own personal lands. Now, this is a concept that continental kings, especially France and Spain, would have laughed at. Ha ha ha! They were able to tax at will though also with hurdles like local Parlement and Cortef. It meant that to survive in England, kings had to be mean and careful. It meant that England could not compete on equal terms with the leading European nations in terms of resources. A fact Henry VIII, a man with glorious medieval ambitions in the vein of Edward III, would come to realise to his pain and distress. There are many reasons why England could no longer compete with the big boys in war, but one of them is population. England was a small place, and not many people lived here. Up to 1450, the population had crept even lower to maybe 2 million. Now, in 1500, the population began to slightly recover, and that would gather pace. England is predominantly a rural society. 90% of people live in the countryside. There are plenty of towns, but many of them are very small regional centres and markets. Only London is significant in European terms, and at 50,000 people, it's a pimple on the buttock that is the global urban population. A few other towns might be around 10,000, York, Bristol, Norwich. However, towns do have an influence out of all proportion to their size in terms of population. England is a strictly hierarchical society and a patriarchal society, in tune with the rest of Europe, pretty much. 
there are three concepts about how society is structured that are talked about a lot at this time, and all of which overlap like a Venn diagram. One is the analogy of society as a human body, with individuals having different characteristics and roles suitable to their function. The point was everyone needed to carry out their predestined functions regularly and with discipline for the body to thrive. The second emphasised the importance of Christian virtues, ensuring the good of all through the practice of those Christian virtues. By so doing, individuals would work for themselves and society at the same time for the common weal. The phrase "common weal" or "commonwealth" is an increasingly common concept as we move through the 16th century. And then finally, we have the most traditional. The theory of estates: those who rule, those who pray, those who work, the nobility, the church, the unwashed, all have their place. All have responsibilities to each other. Now, in all of these three, the strongest theme is order: order, hierarchy, structure. If people didn't stick to their function and place, the result will be chaos. Just saying, conservatism, resistance to change, was deeply embedded in attitudes. So, although there have been changes in the detail of social structure since the conquest, one of Billy the Conk's henchmen would have basically recognised pretty much everything. And let's be clear: this isn't a fluid situation with changes happening as they would. Parliament legislated to make sure everyone knew where they sat, down to defining what they could wear. So only a king could wear cloth of gold, for example. Only a peer could wear ermine. If you went out hunting with hawks, if you're a lowly gentleman, you better not take more than a kestrel. Chronicles are festooned with complaints that so and so should not have been in such and such a position of power because they were low-born. This is not a society that would easily accept the word meritocracy. So, at the top were the magnates, the great men, about whom we speak so much—a handful of families. Then the rest of the nobility: barons and peers, knights, gentry, and gentlemen. The vast, vast majority of land lies in the hands of these families, and their wealth and status is very much bound up in their ownership of land. A rich and successful merchant might gain power and recognition, but to gain noble status, land was a requirement. Of course, land alone didn't do the job. Certainly not in one generation. Marriage. Connections, family, all played their part, but landholding lay at the base of it all. For this reason, merchants or lawyers or civil servants, occupations which now form an escalator to nobility, because they acquire wealth, those guys tend to end up buying into land. The problem with that, of course, is it didn't buy lineage, tradition, family. So marrying into the aristocracy was equally important. Family and lineage had always been important to the aristocracy. As the number of new men rises through the Tudor period, it's increasingly important to display and demonstrate that lineage if you want to be taken seriously. The College of Arms, incorporated by Richard III, is increasingly popular. You needed your badge, crest, and emblems. 
to talk about who you were and where you came from. The households of these rich men could be enormous. For example, Lord Darcy from the north of England had a household of 80 people. But then, of course, Lord Darcy's household was much more than a place to go and kick the cat, put your slippers on, pick up the newspaper. His household included immediate family, extended family members, estate officers, sons of clients, servants, young men who form a household fighting force. You might imagine this is very different to the rest of society, and in terms of scale, it might well be. But there are many similarities. So if we look below the nobility, the structure chart shows peasantry, those that work. But as you'd expect, the peasantry is as subdivided as the nobility. It was reckoned as a rule of thumb that half a yard land was the minimum amount of land needed to support a family, so 15 acres. The yeoman was a wealthy individual at the head of a significant business who might hold several yard lands and employ a number of people while at the bottom the cottager might hold no more than a cottage garden and be a purely wage labourer and as poor as a church mouse, or in fact even poorer. In fact, a position as church mouse would look like a significant career development opportunity for your average cottager. Let me give you an example of a yeoman. This is Bishop Latimer's father, probably around the 1490s. My father was a yeoman and had no lands of his own, only he had a farm of three or four a pound at the uttermost, and hereupon he tilled so much as kept half a dozen men. He had walk for a hundred sheep, and my mother milked forty cows. He kept me to school. He married my sisters with five pound. A bit of interpretation. Latimer's father held land as a tenant and employed a significant household or number of men. He had enough money to send his son to school to better himself, and indeed he did, becoming a bishop, who very, very probably talked nothing like that. And he had enough money to give his daughters a significant dowry when they got married. Latimer's father was therefore an example of how the 15th century had moved increasingly away from direct management of estates by the nobility based on customary labour, what you might call serfdom. More and more land was given to tenant farmers, like the Latimers, in return for a cash rent. So Latimer's father was a relatively wealthy man, maintaining a significant business. The yeoman's household was many things, therefore... It was a unit of production, you might say, a business, with various roles and function within it to operate as a business. In both town and country, it would have workshops or room to hold animals. So it was a unit of production, but it was also a unit of authority. It had a leader. You won't be surprised to learn that for the vast majority of cases, the head of the household, the leader, was male. In towns, every bit, as in the countryside, only in a very few examples, mainly in towns, would a widow be declared a femme sole and run the business, but it was pretty rare. The authority of men as head of the household was very much enshrined in law. The authority of the father was central to all authority, monarchical, papal, clerical, as well as in the family. The father was to be feared as well as loved. He ruled and judged his family as well as caring for it. However critical and valued the wife might be, 
both as part of the family and part of the household, as a unit of production, she was always the junior partner. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Modern households are basically where the family lives, and the same phrase might be used in the 1500 household. But that family was not limited to blood relations. When a man talked about his family, he meant everyone in the household, including servants and apprentices. Servants would live in the household, and service played an essential mechanic in the economic and social structure. It allowed young people to leave home, learn and make some money to prepare for marriage. Apprentices in towns would join their master, live with him and pay a fee, fully expecting to then become a master in their turn. As the Tudor age progresses, population rises, but inflation stunts economic growth, and more and more apprentices will never be able to become a master and will forever remain essentially a wage labourer, the equivalent of a rural labourer or cottager. However, the household was therefore not just a centre of family and production, it was also a centre of training and education. That household was physically a small place for most people. OK, the great lords had massive stone-built castles and palaces. And in this period, we're beginning to see the transformation of the way those residences are defined, as defence becomes less of a priority and comfort and display much more important but most people would have a mainly wooden, built house, with just two or three rooms within it. The household of a yeoman was therefore a very crowded place, and privacy was very much at a premium, a statement that applies to all classes of society, actually. In the great houses, the servants would often sleep together on the rushes on the floor of the great hall. In most normal houses, master and mistress and servant would sleep together in the same room, and the possession of a bed, and if you're really lucky, a bed with curtains, was the most exciting and thrilling acquisition you could think of. Shakespeare's famous will, where he leaves his wife his second-best bed, would be unlikely to be viewed as an insult at the time, because the number of physical possessions people had was absolutely tiny. Typical was the will of a craftsman in Lincoln, who left at the end of his life just 22 items. These items were all connected with three activities, eating, sleeping and sitting down. Within the house, the work of the man was usually well-defined and limited, in the sense that a man had a specific occupation. It was a farmer, a carpenter or whatever. While what the women did was essentially everything else labouring in the fields, mending and cleaning clothes, buying food, and critically, it fell to the woman to market and sell any surplus the farm might produce in the village or the local town. After the age of seven or eight, children would be part of the work, carrying out any tasks for which their age made them capable. Families tended to have three priorities. 
The first was simply survival. The second, to see their children launched successfully in life, and the third, to transfer wealth through the generations. The Tudor world was full of scary risks, and the margin between a safe, comfortable life and disaster were really narrow. One simple fact that brought this home to me was that within a 21st century household, apparently food will consume about 21% of total income. In a Tudor household, that figure was 80%. 80% on food. So there were many things that could visit disaster on a family. It could be years of bad harvest. These years could not only be devastating, but were very unpredictable. You never knew when they were going to happen. Plague was ever-present, and regular rounds of bubonic plague recurred throughout the 15th and 16th century. In York, for example, there were seven major outbreaks between 1485 and 1550. So mortality could easily be 20 to 30 percent. And then in the background was the threat of other infectious disease, so very few people made it to 60 years old. The average age was 33, though if you lived through your 20s, you could expect to make it to your 40s. What all this means is that people valued stability over change. Their economic strategies emphasised the minimisation of risk rather than the maximisation of opportunity. Tudor society was constantly in search of stability, order and control. Launching your children into the world saw its end point as marriage. At this point, the standing assumption was that each newly married couple would set up their own new household. This meant that marriage often came quite late because it could not happen until the couple had saved up enough to do so. As the 16th century inflation crisis hit the economy, this began to mean later and later. Certainly, late 20s was very common. To reach that point, parents had to make sure their children were educated and acquired a career. So famously, to the horror of international visitors, children tended to leave the household early. They might go to useful relatives as an apprentice if they were a boy, or as a domestic servant if they were a girl, or indeed a boy. Girls would very often go to other households as servants. This might be to relatives, or if they were older, they would go to the local hiring fairs and find themselves a position that way. And finally, in transmitting wealth to future generations, much is made, of course, of the position of the first son. The concept of primogeniture is very much established in England, except, rather surprisingly, in the Weald of Kent, which is odd and slightly cute but it would have been a hard family that made no provision for their other children, and most parents found a way to do so, either providing a suitable marriage portion for their daughters or a small living for their sons. In this kin and the wider family could be very important. The honour and reputation of the family, the wider family, was important. None wanted to see a cousin or a close family member living in poverty, as much for the reputation of the family as for the happiness of the person involved so they might help out when times were hard. So there we go, a very brief attempt to summarise the priorities of a typical household, if such a thing exists, of course. But we should talk a little about how things are changing these verities as we embark on the Tudor world. The relationship between lord and follower was changing. 
Traditionally, the relationship was built on customary dues and service. So labour and payments due from the peasant to his lord in return for the lord's protection. In the 15th and 16th century, the economic world is shifting. The medieval warm period is definitely at an end and the climate generally is getting worse, towards the Little Ice Age of the 17th century. The stagnant and falling population has led to a drop in demand for food and a shortage of labour. Faced with losing money on their domain farms, the big landowners farm out land to yeomen, demanding a fixed money rent and telling them to get on with it. This meant that the landowner got themselves a steady, relatively risk-free income. The yeomen got a chance to improve their position in life. Fine. But this relationship was therefore a very much more commercial one, very different to that between lord and dependent serf. It also weakened their ties with the old communal approach to working the land with other villagers. So ties like this were weakening, the opportunities for individuals to make a better life for themselves rather than being part of an unchanging community relationship. As the idea of serfdom weakened, therefore, there were winners. And as international trade strengthened, the very same applied to towns and merchants. Some made it big from the growing cloth trade. But there were also losers. So copyholders, peasants working land for someone else with no ownership, were very vulnerable to bad years and the landowner raising rents. And there were many failures with families just thrown off the land. Peasants without land, the free wage labourers' cottages, found it increasingly difficult to find work as we move into the 16th century. Farmers reacted to the lack of available labour by often enclosing land and turning from arable to sheep because it required much less labour. Thus, even less work was available and despite the population decline of the 15th century, the most vulnerable found themselves out of work. Then as population slowly recovered in the 15th and 16th century, both these factors really hit home. The medieval attitude towards the poor had always been one of Christian duty and the giving of alms. Christian teaching gave the poor an odd sort of status as a kind of blessed by God, which is odd. It's the kind of blessing I could do without, frankly. The Tudor century would see a terrible growth of those trapped by poverty. The desperation at a dole of bread in 1533 in Southwark, for example, resulted in a crush so bad that four men, a woman and a boy, were crushed to death. Suddenly the poor were everywhere, rather than keeping a safe and controllable distance. And attitudes towards them changed, for a society in search of order and control, the mass of transient and rootless poor was terrifying. So increasingly a distinction was made between the deserving and undeserving poor. Those who wanted to work but could not, and those who could work but did not. The view was that able-bodied men were simply shirkers. The fact that there was just no work to be had was rarely accepted as an excuse, with the resulting pain visited on those without work. In this world, religion played a constant and unchanging part of everyone's lives. This was a society where devotion to God and Christian faith were assumed. 
in which membership of the church and obedience to its teaching were a profound social duty. Religion was part of the, the turn of the seasons and the progression of the year, such as the mystery plays of Midsummer in Corpus Christi, or the priest leading the procession around the fields to bless the crops. It marked the progression of life through birth, baptism, marriage and death. There was no tradition of reading the Bible for the vast majority. The literate gentry might read devotional books explaining the mysteries or leading them in their devotion. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But reading the Bible was for those who could, according to the church, properly understand it. Those who had been ordained priests. So the congregation listened to and watched the priests during Mass, separated by the rood screen, but also separated by knowledge and even language. They all listened to the priest whispering the service in Latin and knew that in front of them a miracle was occurring, the transformation of the wine and bread into the blood and body, the miracle of transubstantiation. But only very rarely would they take part in the Eucharist and then only the bread, not the wine. Outside of Sunday and the special feast days, masses were said every day at side chapels. Henry VIII would listen to three masses or five masses every day. So hence the name of the mystery plays, because the plays were an attempt to explain the mysteries, just as were the images in the church and devotional literature. Because there was no direct access to the word of God and the Bible. In a world driven by risks and by so many inexplicable events and disasters, the church was the only true shield. God's mercies seemed available only to the faithful through the mediation of the church through the seven sacraments, obedience to the church. The church had huge reserves of spiritual power which it dispensed through these sacraments and through indulgences. So however dissatisfaction grew with the Pope and church among the learned and the political, on the local level the most venal, ignorant and corrupt priest was set above the wisest layman through the sacrament of ordination. And by and large, on a daily level, the church worked hard, which marked success, to satisfy and support their parishioners. New foundations of colleges, particularly at Oxford and Cambridge, were made to turn out well-educated priests. Most parishes were well provided. In a survey of 500 livings in the Diocese of Canterbury, for example, only 26 parish priests were recorded as absent. And yet there was dissatisfaction in some quarters. At the turn of the previous century, John Wycliffe's objections to the wealth of the church, to the doctrine of transubstantiation, his emphasis on the word of God and desire to see everyone able to access that word of God through the Bible in English, had won him supporters, the Lollards. The Lollards had never managed to become a mass movement and had been firmly driven underground by both church and monarch when Henry V 
had John Oldcastle's rising crushed and Oldcastle himself burned in 1417. But throughout the 15th century, although leaderless, the, quote, known men and women, as they were called, had sustained their faith in secret from household to household, carefully husbanding Wycliffe's English Bible, carefully fostering their community. Lollard masters took up Lollard apprentices. Lollard families protected the missionaries that travelled from community to community. By 1500, there were enough signs of Lollardy's revival for bishops once again to hunt for the heresy and to find it. England, then at the dawn of the Tudor age, would have been recognised very much by time travellers from 12th century England. Deeply structured, deferential and hierarchical, deeply conservative and deeply religious. But look closely and there were currents of change. A population beginning to grow and recover. The loosening of old feudal ties and relationships that was bringing opportunity for some and poverty for others a strain of anti-clericalism and murmurings of the need for church reform, a monarchy driven by a desire to centralise and gain financial freedom. So there we go. Next time we'll have a look at Henry VII and how history has perceived him with the help of acute and deeply professional and erudite observers such as Ladybird and Celeron Yateman. Until that time, thank you all very much for listening. It's very kind of you. I hope you're enjoying the fun. Thanks to all of you who comment and take part on the website or the Facebook group, which I thoroughly enjoy. Meanwhile, good luck then, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>